Chapter 5, Part 8 of Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robin Koning. Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion, edited by Gerald Burney Smith. Chapter 5, Part 8. The Work of the Early Apologists. New Tendencies. When a student has followed with some care the course of Christianity's development in post-apostolic times, he has become familiar with the main features characterizing the new religion during the next two generations. The age of the apologists did not produce any very radically new features in Christianity. Yet, although the leading apologists themselves stood definitely within the Christian communities as already established, they do represent certain new tendencies in the growth of the new religion. In general, they aim to show that Christianity is really deserving of a recognized place in the world. The patient, unaggressive attitude of earlier times is gradually superseded by a growing disposition towards self-defense and aggression. The apologists address themselves to the emperors. They contend for the superiority of Christianity over the culture and religion of the contemporary world. They vigorously attack Jewish opponents, and occasionally they also refute the heretics who have now become independent of the church. The Individual Apologists Apart from writings like Luke, Acts and John, which are essentially apologetic in spirit if not in form, the earliest apologist known is Quadratus. But only a very small fragment of his work, which was addressed to Hadrian about 124 AD, is now extant. About the year 150, Aristides, a Christian philosopher of Athens, addressed to Antonius Pius a defense of Christianity, the main contention being that true knowledge of God is found only in the new religion. While the Jews profess to believe in one God, they are accused of really worshipping angels. The gods of the Greeks are merely gross anthropomorphic creatures, and the deities of the barbarians are simply the forces of nature. Only by the fourth division of humanity, the Christians, is God truly known and worshipped. Justin was a Hellenistic philosopher converted to Christianity in Asia about 130 AD, but his chief work was done at Rome, where he conducted a Christian school until overtaken by a martyr's death about the year 165. Among his genuine extant writings are a longer and a shorter apology, in which he contends for the innocence of Christians and affirms that Christianity is worthy of recognition as the true religion and the true philosophy. Similarly, in another work, The Dialogue with Trypho, Christianity's superiority over Judaism is affirmed on the ground that Christians alone are the true Israel. Tatian, a pupil of Justin, also addressed a defense of Christianity to the Greeks. He describes Greek culture as a body of error, while Christianity is the true wisdom running back through all antiquity. Moses is said to have antedated Homer by 400 years, and since the Old Testament is claimed as the peculiar property of Christianity, 
the new religion possesses both the prestige of antiquity and the deposit of real revelation. Several fragments are preserved from Melito of Sardis, who addressed an apology to Marcus Aurelius. To the same emperor, Athenagoras, possibly of Athens, directed an appeal on behalf of the Christians about 177 AD. The argument proceeded along usual lines, defending Christians against calumnies and dwelling upon the nobility of the Christian conception of God. In still another work, Athenagoras attempted to furnish a philosophical basis for belief in the resurrection. Theophilus, bishop of Antioch in Syria, sometime after the death of Marcus Aurelius, 180 AD, also composed three apologetic books addressed to a heathen called Autolycus. About the same date, a Roman Christian, Minucius Felix, wrote a defensive treatise modelled after Cicero's De Natura Deorum. All these early apologists were interested in demanding tolerance from the state and in defending the new religion's superiority over pagan religions and philosophies. To a less extent, they refuted Jewish critics, and incidentally, they now and then condemned heretics. Thus, representative leaders in different parts of Christendom were beginning to widen their range of vision and claim for the new religion a recognized place in that ancient world. The specific problem of the apologists. All the apologists were engaged in the general task of proving to the heathen the absolute rationality and universality of the Christian religion, the true philosophy. But their more specific problem was a Christological one. During the apostolic age, and especially in post-apostolic times, the process of pushing back upon the earthly Jesus the glory of the heavenly Christ was gradually completed. No distinction was any longer made between the historical Jesus and the Christ of faith to whom Christians directed their prayers and confessions, in whose name they were baptized, of whose immortal substance they partook in the Eucharist, and whose divine glory they celebrated in their hymns. The fullness of deity thus popularly ascribed to the heavenly Christ was freely posited of the man Jesus. He was now definitely called a second god, Deuteros Theos. The apologists shared in full this item of popular faith, and the necessity of defending it against the charge of polytheism gave them their special problem. Polytheism had long ago been discarded, not only by Jews, but by the better educated classes of the Greco-Roman world, and strong monotheistic tendencies had appeared within those circles where either Platonic idealism or Stoic pantheism exerted a dominating influence. Christians were now accused of being polytheists, both by Jewish and by pagan critics. Jewish criticism was taken less seriously, since hope of winning any large Jewish following had been abandoned. But the desirability of meeting Gentile objections was felt more keenly, and the apologists set themselves to the specific task of proving that Christians were really monotheists, in spite of the fact that they worshipped Jesus as God. The Logos Christology The chief instrument employed by the apologists in defence of Christian monotheism was the notion of the Logos. 
This word, which was already doing service in various connections among their pagan contemporaries, was appropriated by the apologists without any thoroughgoing attempt to define its exact meaning. Their primary interest was in Christianity as a new cult, and philosophical terminology was employed only as an expedient to serve the apologetic needs of the religionist. In other words, we have here to do with the religionist turned philosopher, and not with the philosopher interpreting religion in terms of a carefully devised system of philosophical speculation. This opportunist character of the apologist's work is apparent in their Christology. While they call Jesus God, they endeavoured to unite him with the supreme deity by means of the Logos, as a divine emanation or hypostasis. In this way, they hoped not only to meet the demands of philosophical monotheism, but to establish the rationality and universality of Christianity. Since the Logos was commonly supposed to be the source of all intelligence within the universe, everywhere and at all times, all the enlightenment of the past could be called essentially Christian in content, and all present and future wisdom must be sought within Christian circles where the Logos had finally been perfectly revealed. The Philosophical versus the Mythical Motive Happy as this Christian apologetic may on first sight seem, it contained features which made it impossible of acceptance for the real philosopher of that day. It was of the nature of all genuine Hellenistic Logos doctrine that man by creation had the Logos enlightenment in virtue of which he could by searching find out God. This was emphatically denied by the apologists, whose ultimate criterion of religious knowledge was not reason at all, but supernatural special revelation. Theoretically, they allowed that the Logos had been present in the Gentile world before the coming of Christ. Yet they affirmed that this manifestation was of a very inferior sort, and that the Greek philosophers had in the main produced only a mass of errors. Nor could a contemporary philosopher attain true wisdom outside the Christian community. Ultimately, true philosophy, that is, true religion, was a divine donation rather than a human attainment, and could be acquired only through acquaintance with revelation contained in the Old Testament and finally brought to completion in the Logos Christ. When the apologists took this stand, they really sided not with the philosophers, but with the mythologists of their day. The Christian Logos was not a normal quantum of divine rational energy possessed in common by mankind, but a heroic figure descended to earth under one special set of circumstances in order to redeem a hopelessly lost humanity. By interpreting Christianity in this way, the apologists probably did more to secure its place in that world than they could have done by adopting outright the more rational methods of philosophy. Although the mythical deities of Greece and Rome were no longer generally revered, the mythical motive was still strong even among the educated. The force of this motive outside of Christianity is amply attested, for example, in the abundant allegory of the Stoics. By employing this device, they recognized, in spite of their insistence upon the rational, logikos, character of the whole universe, that in the realm of religion, 
the functioning significance of myth was far stronger than that of reason. In mythicizing the Logos by identifying it with an individual, the apologists were not doing absolutely original work. Their notable predecessor within Christianity was the author of the fourth gospel, but both he and they had Hellenistic predecessors. The outstanding Hellenistic figure who was supposed to have functioned as the creative, revealing, redeeming Logos was Hermes, though various other divine heroes, such as Osiris and Thot among the Egyptians, played a similar role. When Christians pictured Jesus as the incarnation of the enlightening, saving Logos, they were but giving further evidence of their skill and wisdom in reinterpreting his career in such a way as to make him minister to the needs of that larger world to which expanding Christianity was now making its appeal. End of chapter 5, part 8 Recording by Robin Koning, Melbourne Part 8, The Work of the Early Apologists